Welcome back to On Stage at Housing Works Bookstore Cafe. In this episode, you'll hear from a few writers on why they chose not to have children, and also excerpts from two novels set in New York City. I'm podcast producer Colin Drowen, and I'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. Enjoy! On March 31st, we launched the essay collection Selfish, Shallow, and Self-Absorbed, 16 Writers on the Decision Not to Have Kids, hosted by Megan Dom. In this clip, Dom asked contributors Anna Holmes, Laura Kipnis, and Paul Lisicki about why they think people believe not having kids is taboo. I'm wondering if as, as a social critic, as sort of a social anthropologist, if you have any theories, and, and you too, Anna, because you, you traffic in the same kind of discussion, if you have any theories why this is, continues to be such a taboo. Like, what, I mean, we all have our sort of, you know, obvious theories, but... but Not having kids? Yeah, why? Well, a lot, of, a lot of people would assume that that means that you don't like them. And I mean, I, I wanted to make clear in the piece that I like children, but I didn't want to argue it too strenuously uh, because I feel like I don't have to, you know, um, prove that I like kids. I mean, people who know me know that I like them, and actually I tend to get along with them better than adults. Um, <laughs> and I'm more, like, drawn to them uh, than I am adults. If you put me in a room with some adults and kids, I'll go hang out with the kids because they're more fun. Uh, but but I felt like I had to, you know, I, I, there was a part of me that thought, well, maybe I should, you know, press the point that I like kids and they're great um, <laughs> and I love my friends' kids. And uh, But, but I, they also felt like I would be apologizing for something I didn't need to apologize for. In the same way, I'm not going to apologize for having been somewhat reckless as a, a youth and having gotten pregnant. I mean, like this is something I feel very strongly about, not to apologize for it. It's, it shouldn't be stigmatized. So um, I think that, now I'm forgetting what the question was, but, <laughs> but, but that, that was how I went into to why, writing Why, piece. I guess, you know, my question is, I mean, and it's a, such an obvious question, why but I think it, we would be remiss it? if we didn't ask it. Right. Like, why does this continue to be such a discussion? Why in 2015 are we still sitting here and this many people have come and, and we're still, this is still considered like a sensitive topic? But I don't know, see, the thing is, I don't know if this, was, if this would have been a sensitive topic in, let's say, the late 90s. I moved here in 91, so I was 18 then. And in my 20s, Maybe it's because I was in New York, but no one was having kids. I feel like something happened, and I don't know if that was like in the early aughts, but not only that I reached the age where my friends were having kids, but where childhood or parenting became somewhat fetishized in a way that made me feel really gross about it. Um, so maybe that's why I, I do feel some trepidation or, or feel self-conscious in a way I didn't feel eight, nine years ago about not having kids because there seems to be such a premium, at least in New York, and in the circles that I'm in or near, particularly in Brooklyn, uh, <laughs> in, which, in, which, in which it's a competitive sport of sorts. And, as, and, I, and I personally find it kind of gross, but maybe that's, maybe that's part of it. Yeah, you know, Paul, there's something I wanted to, to ask you about because, you know, you are a gay man of a, of a certain age. I'm not sure, I might have to ask each of you roughly how old you are because it's interesting. I mean, you talk very movingly in your essay about growing up assuming you wouldn't have kids, right. couldn't have kids, and then coming of age, assuming you wouldn't live. You came of age in the middle of the AIDS crisis, and now we have a world where parenthood is so revered, and it's not just the straight people, it's the, the gay people are, are you know pushing their strollers down the sidewalks, and I'm wondering if that's something that, that irks you or interests you? Or oh, it, it irks <laughs> and interests. I mean, even though everything has changed, I mean, so many things have changed, there's, there's a, a, a drug that people can take to prevent uh, the transmission of HIV now. There's, there's um, LGBT um, marriage in many states. Um, 
so much has changed, but it's, I, I think, um, writing the essay forced me to confront the fact that my attitude to, about futurity was probably, um, I don't want to use the word damaged, but it's like mm -hmm. not something that one can shake off. I grew up at a time just assuming that me and my tribe wouldn't live, and we would do the best to, you know, to take care of the time we had. So I was thinking of one of the, the difficult things about writing my piece is that I felt a certain obligation to be a spokesman you know, for, for LGBT oh God, people. Oh and, I, and, and I thought, like, <laughs> I cannot do this because I'm going to get it wrong. I'm going to say it wrong at every sentence. And, um, you know, the, the single example I have of uh, a child of a gay couple is, is um, my ex and I called her the new Rhoda. She was like the, the, the most frightening child in America <laughs> back in the late 90s. And, um, you know, I, that couple were in so many ways pioneers. They didn't, you know, there's, why wouldn't they be awkward? They had no other, other resources or examples in front of them. I was just thinking about that portrayal up against Courtney's portrayal of her brother and his partner and, and that, you know, just the lovely portrait of that child. So I'm glad that both exist in the book. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I mean, I wanna, I think that, so Anna, I, you guys are like adjacent generate adjacent cohort generations or cohorts, right? Anna and Laura. Are you asking me how old I'm asking I am? you. I'm like trying to get around asking <laughs> you. Know, I don't know. I'll tell you. Look, I'm 41. You, okay, <laughs> you're 41. Yeah. Okay, and you are. You Old, don't have to older. say. Okay, okay. But I'm wondering. Okay. I'm so fucking old. It's embarrassing. No, but it's because I, it, you know, I kind of am starting to feel like this issue is almost more acute for younger women, women in this moment, and men, fam, people, because parenthood has been elevated to this. I, I don't even know. It's been professionalized. It's been fetishized. So I wonder, Laura, if you sort of grew up with a feminist sensibility, having kind of less stress or anxiety around this than maybe like somebody in, in Anna's and my generation. I could answer that. I also want to sort of comment on something Anna said before. Maybe this will uh, kind of segue into one another. This, this, one of the things I noticed, and I haven't had a chance to read through all the essays in the book, but there's a sort of trope of the, but I really love kids. And I found myself, I was sort of horrified to read this over and over in the book because I, in my essay also, had made this kind of ironic, but let no one say that I don't love kids and talking about my you know, adored niece and, and two nephews. And I noticed in almost every essay, don't say I don't love kids. You know, I've got these, yeah. these relations with kids. And so there's a kind of defensiveness uh, to the writing that, uh, in, interests me, except for Jeff Dyers, who's like, fuck them, I hate them, you know. <laughs> they're, they're boring, get rid of them, you know, and, and talking about the potential class resentment he would have with a child that, he, you know, if he ever had a child, he would feel class resentment with well, it. Well, actually, but, so, I, but I have to say, not to, not to suggest that the, the men are less charitable towards kids, but t Tim Kreider has a line 
Being, being a parent is, I'm sorry I'm quoting you, Tim. You're probably like, please don't. Being a parent is like, being in, is like belonging to a cult, he says, living in conditions of appalling filth <laughs> and degradation, <laughs> subject to the whim of a capricious and demented master. Uh, and he says, which a surprising number of parents told me they loved. So, so I, do think, I do think that some people um, w were sort of less defensive than others, but I think that's a really important point, and I wonder if women, there are three men and 13 women yeah. in the book, and that ratio, I was, it, was, it was pretty deliberate on my part, and we can talk about that more in a minute, but, but I wonder if there's a, like a, a, a sort of anxiety more for women and a need to say that we don't well, hate kids. And on April 2nd, we hosted Set in the City, the New York novel, a night celebrating and discussing New York-based fiction. The night started with Amanda Filipaki reading from The Unfortunate Importance of Beauty, followed by Dylan Landis reading from Rainy Royal. So I'm going to read uh, four minutes. It's uh, from my novel. I won't explain the novel. It's really about beauty, uh, the unfortunate fact that it's so important in the world. But um, I'm going to read from a subplot that has a little more to do maybe with New York City that's maybe more typical of New York City and that has nothing to do with beauty. <laughs> it, it has to do with a, a literary party, uh, a kind of a book party. So I'm going to read little snippets and uh, uh, little explanations between the snippets. So the explanation first. Georgia is a rather successful literary novelist. This is her first, uh, this is her book party, taking place in two rooms of an apartment. Um, so here we go. Georgia's cell phone rings. As usual, she answers it on speaker so we can hear. A man's voice says, hey, Georgia, is the party still going? Uh, yeah, she says, like it's a dumb question. Great, is there an alternate entrance into your building? Uh, no, just the main entrance. They're not letting me in. Who isn't? The cops. Cops, she repeats. Uh, yeah, he says, like it's a dumb question. Why, she asks. Because of what's going on in your lobby, maybe? What's going on, she asks. You don't know? One of your doormen is going postal. He has a gun. We all look at each other, eyes wide. He goes on. The doorman made everyone vacate the lobby, except for the other doorman and the staff. So that's why I'm asking if there's like maybe a service entrance in the back or something. Are you crazy? Why would you want to enter a building containing a doorman with a gun? With icy indignation, he says, because you know very well that I have dreamed of meeting your agent, Melody Jackman, for years, <laughs> if not decades. I've just finished writing my third unpublished novel and I might be able to pitch it better in person. All I care about is making it past the doorman and to the party. Listen to what you're saying, Georgia says. He exclaims, it's easy for you to get on your high horse. You've got it made. This is my chance. I'm not going to let some psycho doorman get in my way. Georgia says, my agent isn't coming. She never goes to author parties. Ah, oh, damn, the guy says and hangs up. So um, then we skip ahead. Uh, all the guests are told about the doorman with a gun in the lobby. So I start again here. Molly, George's freelance publicist, bursts into the other room. No, bursts in from the, from the other room, hollering at us. I've got page six on the phone. Georgia, they want to comment. 
Molly, will you be sane, Georgia says. Molly covers the mouthpiece with her finger and whispers to Georgia, you'll be sane. Three of my authors, including you, are trapped at this party. And yes, I know that your new novel is great, but that doesn't mean you don't need publicity. You are only an author. Your profession will, be, will probably be extinct within your lifetime. So stop busting my chops. I'm just doing my job, which I do as superbly as you do yours. You should congratulate me on having had the presence of mind to pitch the doorman drama to page six while it's still hot. <laughs> What's more, they're eating it up, which hasn't been the case in a long time. Okay, now we skip ahead. Um, a little later, the doorman with the gun actually makes his way to the apartment where they're having the party because he's looking for a specific person he's trying to kill. One of the guests accidentally lets him into the apartment, hoping he was a literary agent or editor. <laughs> when the guests realize he's looking for a specific person he wants to kill, who happens to not be them, they're not as worried. Now back to the reading. <laughs> the doorman addresses the whole crowd. I want everyone's hands up. Everyone's hands go up, at least somewhat up. Some hands don't go up past waist level. A few people are finishing their conversations. I happen to hear the, the tail end of an exchange between two men standing close to me. The first man says, Mary's last novel sold very well. I'll send you her manuscript. The second man replies, no need, I only acquire literary fiction now. The first man says, ah, well, I've got some literary authors too. Here's my card, could, you, could, could we have lunch sometime? The doorman stares incredulously at the few people who are still talking. I have a gun, folks, he wails. Are you blind? <coughs> Finally, everyone falls silent with hands at least up to chest level. Okay, that's it. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> This takes, place, this takes place in a townhouse in Greenwich Village. Rainy is 14, just a girl trying to get from the entry hall of the townhouse to her pink room on the third floor when her father, Howard, thumps the sofa in that sit-down baby way. She stops, rain-soaked, in the foyer. The place is too quiet, not an acolyte in sight. Did he send them upstairs to their own rooms or out for pizza? Usually the first floor is packed with young musicians. Some are students, some strays, but Howard Royal only brings home the best. Three days ago, he found two brilliant cellist chicks, found, thanks Rainey, like shining orphans. The girls have been ensconced in his bedroom, like he's really going to jam with cellos. Half the acolytes are guys who supply part-time money and part-time girlfriends and revere Howard in an appropriately oblique manner. When someone new shows up, they say things like, what's your ax, baby? But half are girls who play celestial music and give celestial blowjobs and can't believe they get to jam and party and live in the extra bedrooms of, oh my God, Howard Royal. Rainey hasn't heard the place this silent in centuries. Howard's at one end of the parlor sofa, clamping a beer between socked feet and a clarinet between his knees. He's adjusting the reed. Come here, baby, he says. Isn't it amazing? We're alone. On West 10th Street, alone means three people, Rainey, her father, and Gordy, 
who lounges on the far sofa arm, refractive as a patch of snow, from his long, milk-colored hair to his alabaster hands. His jeans are white, too, and he parks a damp white ked on the upholstery. Gordy Vine is not and never has been an acolyte. He is a horn player and the best musical technician in the house. Even Howard says it. But Howard has the charisma. Gordy claims to be albino, but his eyes are green. He pretends to be unaware of Rainey by keeping his head down. He pretends he is not getting sidewalk crud on the brocade. He pretends to edit penciled notes in a spiral-bound score. He turned 39 last month. Rainey shifts in the foyer. What? She holds her arms out to show the damage she will do the upholstery. I'm soaking wet. She regrets this instantly. Gordy's attention, like a draft from a threshold, wafts toward her. He doesn't even have to raise his head. Howard blows on the clarinet's mouthpiece, looks puzzled, and says, sounds like fish frying. Not much about her father's jazz makes sense to Rainey. Get your shoe off Lala's sofa, she says. Lala is Howard's mother. She owns the house, but she lives in an old folks' home uptown. Some days, Rainey can talk to Gordy any way she wants. Gordy smiles. The kid remains. Rainey, he says softly. Even his voice sounds albino. Rainey thinks of white plaster walls licked by the painter's brush. I sent the acolytes out to collect sounds, says Howard, as if sounds were lost quarters that winked from gutters. Sit, daughter. She drops her pack, collaborates noisily with the folding chair in the parlor, and sits on it backwards while Howard watches with pleased amusement. She smells his body oil, sandalwood. That school psychologist called again today, he says, but I think she's on the wrong track. What do you think? Rainey flinches and looks to the ceiling cherubs for strength. The ceiling cherubs are three plaster angels who cavort around a trio of bare bulbs. Their axe used to be the chandelier, but last month, Sotheby's Park Bernay took it away. The house is shedding its sweetest parts like lost earrings. In return, electricity keeps humming, pizzas keep arriving, and Rainy keeps going to urban day. Are we getting a new chandelier? Do you know why the school psychologist called again? No. Rainy stares off into the kitchen, willing the refrigerator to disgorge a glass of milk. I think you do. She's full of shit. Can I go now? Look at me, daughter. He smiles as if indulging her. It's important to be candid about these things. Gordy's not looking at her is now so intense he might as well shine flashlights in her eyes. Howard and the smile persist. So tell us why the school psychologist is talking about you engaging with the male teachers. The school psychologist always peels and eats an orange while she and Rainey talk. The scent comes back to Rainey in a rush. It is the scent of denial, the innocence that slides over her when Florence, the psychologist, asks how she feels about her mother, her father, the torments she dreams up for that Levinson girl. Extricating herself gracefully from a straddled folding chair could be problematic. Screw you. She knocks over the metal chair as she stands and elbows one of the new cellos, so she barely has to hear her father say under the clatter, oh, you can do better than your old dad. Thank you for listening, and thank you to the staff and volunteers at Housing Works Bookstore that make these events possible, as well as our event partners and attendees and anyone who's ever bought a book, a beer, a sandwich, or anything else at our bookstore. 
Housing Works is a healing community of people living with and affected by HIV AIDS. Our mission is to end the dual crises of homelessness and AIDS through relentless advocacy, the provision of life-saving services, and entrepreneurial businesses which sustain our efforts. You can visit the bookstore in person at 126 Crosby Street in downtown New York and online at housingworksbookstore.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and more, and keep up with the bookstore through our online newsletter. We'll be back with another episode every other week. Thanks again for listening.